All right. Good morning once again, everybody. Happy Easter to you. Everybody doing all right? Resurrection Sunday. Wow, what a deal. Uh, this is a marvel. The magnitude of this really is um, difficult to take in. Um, what do you say? What do you say on Easter, right? I've been a pastor for, well, I don't know. Actually, I haven't done the math. I was going to say 20 years, but longer than that. So let's just say, you know, from, from the time, you know, I don't, I don't know, 30s, Easter sermons. Um, and what do you, how do you, what, how, how do you, how do you try to capture the magnitude? You can't. So, um, so let me just start with this. Um, Easter is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's just begin with that word, resurrection. And let me just point out, there's a difference between a resurrection and a resuscitation. We are not celebrating this morning a resuscitation of a dead body coming back to life. I mean, that is a part of the story. But, you know, there's, there's well, I guess even starting in the Bible, there are several resuscitation stories. Uh, the raising, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter uh, from the dead. She was dead and she was brought back to life. Um, maybe the story of Lazarus, that might be the most well-known among the gospel stories of a resuscitation. We, we can call it the resurrection if you want to, but I want to point out an important distinction. Really, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus from, uh, from the dead was a resuscitation. And what's the difference? Well, uh, someone who is resuscitated from death back to life, um, all of those people eventually go on to die. I mean, that's kind of a sour thing to say. But, but this, is, this is what a resuscitation is. Resuscitation is from death back to life, and every single human being who has been resuscitated has eventually died. Has anybody noticed that? The mortality rate among humans has hovered right around 100% for all of history, right? These are resuscitations. Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, Beauty and the Beast, right? The Beast was resuscitated. When Belle confessed her love to him. Is that how the story went? You can probably think of other examples from the movies of resuscitations. All of these people eventually go on to die. That is not what we're celebrating on Easter. On Easter, we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in which death itself was conquered. Jesus is alive. This is a resurrection. We are celebrating the victory of life over death. We're celebrating the victory of love over death. It is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's what this is about. Now, here's the thing, and to kind of press in a little bit on that. Among the early Christians, and some people get a little bit mixed up on this, the early Christians, they were not um, easily led along uh, by uh, fairy tales. They knew just as well as we do that things like this just don't happen. That resurrection from the dead, just the things like this just don't happen. The, the early Christians knew that as well as we do, and yet they continued to tell the story and tell the story and retell the story. And in fact, Jesus, after having been thoroughly crucified and thoroughly dead and placed in the tomb, he was alive again. And they knew this kind of thing doesn't happen. They knew, in a manner of speaking, this, this is not the kind of world in which these kinds of things occur. To which the early Christians would respond and say, well, that's really kind of our point. 
our point in telling this story is that the world is actually not the same anymore. That this event of Christ having been raised from the dead is, is actually an event that has, that has changed the world itself. And the way that the early Christians said that was with this notion of new creation. That with the resurrection of Christ from the dead, God's new creation has been launched. God's kingdom has been inaugurated. God's great healing of the world program has been launched in Christ. The Apostle Paul would encapsulate this when he called uh, Christ the first fruits, right? The first, it's, a, it's the beginning of this brand new fresh thing that God is doing in the world. This is kind of maybe an attempt to get close to the significance of what this day is all about. And so we have these stories, these four Easter stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of our gospel writers, as we call them, um, they give us their Easter story, these vignettes, these pictures, these windows, these moments that occurred on that first Easter Sunday, and in John's case, in some days after. And usually when we think about Easter Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, just like we do with Christmas, I think we typically in our imaginations, we stitch together these vignettes and pictures and moments and stories from all four different gospel writers and trying to put together a single picture of Easter morning. Nothing wrong with that. But what I think yields a richness, perhaps, that uh, we might miss otherwise is by focusing in on one particular gospel writer's way of telling the story of Easter uh, Sunday. So that's what we're going to, or Easter morning, that's what we're going to do um, this morning. But before we get to that, um, I want to give you really kind of a headline short, like if you're a Cliff Notes kind of person, uh, you know, so what are, what are the Cliff Notes of what the earliest gospel writers had to say about the meaning of Easter? Um, what are the cliff notes? And I want to suggest that you can, you can hold on to it in two short phrases, right? What the common themes that all four of the Easter morning stories collection that we have, the common themes can be encapsulated in two little phrases. The first is that they're saying to us, Jesus lives. Jesus lives. He's here. He's with us right now. Jesus, not just that Jesus is alive, that's true, but that Jesus lives. He's here with us right now. He is among us. We are not alone. The ministry of Jesus continues. He is still moving forward with his divine mission. The thing that he preached about and talked about, the kingdom of God, he is still among us, carrying that mission forward among us and within us. Death could not hold him. He is alive. Jesus lives. That's the first common theme that cuts across all of the Easter stories that we have from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the second one is just as simply stated uh, and equally uh, significant in its implication. It's this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus lives, they said, and Jesus is Lord. The rulers and lords of this world unleashed their worst against Jesus on Good Friday. He suffered their worst, but now he's alive and he's Lord over all lords. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and the lords of this world are not, in fact, is the implication. Easter, we could say it this way, Easter is God's yes to Jesus and God's no to the top-down coercive domination systems of this world. Think about it like this. Those 
those who conspired to kill Jesus and who did so violently and shamefully and publicly, they did so in the confidence that they were serving and working on behalf of their deity, right? The Jewish religious leaders were confident that they were working on behalf of their deity, which in their case was Yahweh. Same for the Romans. They were, they were confident that what they were doing in executing and crucifying Jesus, that they were doing so on behalf of Caesar, their deity. The Caesar cult was up and running by, by their time. And so in that sense, the crucifixion of Christ on Good Friday was proof positive that their deity was saying no to Jesus and was saying yes to them and their course of action against Jesus. But then comes Easter, and Easter reveals the reality of it all, in fact. Easter is God's yes to Jesus and God's no to the top-down, coercive dominations systems of the world. And so, in effect, the earliest Christians said, you know what? The domination systems of this world, they can continue to bluster and bloviate and blather all they want to. But in the end, they are not, in fact, Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has been vindicated by God. Jesus claimed to reveal the true heart of God to us. He claimed that he was inaugurating the kingdom of God. He claimed to teach us and show us what God is actually like. The rulers of this world rejected him, killed him, but God raised him to life. And so Jesus has been vindicated by God. Jesus has proven. Easter demonstrates that Jesus was right all along about the nature of God, the character of God, the purposes of God in the world. Jesus was right, and everybody else got it wrong. Jesus is Lord, and the pretension of the power structures of this world, well, it's all just empty posturing. We now know this because of Easter. And so, if you want the cliff notes, the summary of the meaning of the Easter stories, it can be encapsulated in those two phrases. Jesus lives and Jesus is Lord. That's the cliff notes. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is look closely at one of the Easter stories we have, and this is from Luke. It is, I mean, it's difficult to pick a favorite among the Easter vignettes. Like, we, right, we love the image of Mary in the garden with the gardener. That's a beautiful Easter moment. Um, that's from John. I think also another has to be a favorite is also given to us by John. That's the breakfast on the beach where they eat the fish and Jesus looks at Peter who had denied him just days before and Jesus looks Peter in the eye. Peter, do you love me? Ah, oh, yeah, you know, I love you. Feed my sheep. You know, that moment, that's, that's got to be a favorite. Easter. I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite. But having said that, and I totally reserve the right to change my mind uh, next time you ask me, but Emmaus, Emmaus, the, the road to Emmaus has to be my favorite Easter story. And not just because it's the longest. I get teased all the time about being a long-winded preacher. And that's not it. Um, here's the thing. Uh, you know, and, and I, know that, I know that you know this, but um, historians, scholars, and so on uh, show us that the four Gospels were written after the writings of the Apostle Paul. So the New Testament is a little bit confusing. If you flip through it, you think you're looking at the historical documents chronologically as they were produced, but they're not. The writings of the Apostle Paul were actually written earlier than the four Gospels. So the four Gospels are written after, at least after much of the 
uh, the Pauline corpus, as it's called among nerds. Uh, as most of the letters of Paul were already out there and circulating, not just to their direct targeted church, but the letters of Paul were quickly circulated among the churches. Uh, so they're out there. Paul's work, his writing is out there, and his work is ongoing. His missionary work is ongoing. And then come along these, these gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, so here's, here's the thing about all that. Sometimes I think we, um, we miss a little bit when we say, well, you know, if you just want the narrative story of the events that happened, you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But if you want the theological commentary and the meaning of all of this, you go to Paul because he's the church's first theologian and so on. Uh, and so if you just want, you know, so, we, so if, if that's your perspective, then, then you might, and I'm going to say it to be a mistake, you might read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as if you're like reading a newspaper, right? Like this is just the facts, man. It's, you know, the reporting of things that happened. And I want to say to that a big fat, obnoxious, no, don't do it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all theologians in their own right, just as Paul is commonly uh, given credit for. And I said all that to say, when you take that in perspective and then read this Emmaus story, you, in the back of your mind, you're saying, okay, why is it that Luke is giving us this story? And I want to say and plant my feet in the claim that Luke is giving us truth in the form of story. See, it's not just, here's what a movie camera would have recorded if there had been a movie camera journalist on site. That's not what Luke, what Luke is doing. He is giving us truth in the form of story. So as we engage this Emmaus uh, story this morning, I want us to do so with that question in mind. Luke begins his account uh, of Easter morning with two women go to the tomb. They find the tomb empty. They see these two angels who say uh, that Jesus has been risen from the, the grave from the dead, and Jesus goes, and, t uh, they, and these two women, the women go and tell the disciples who are themselves in disbelief, they're bewildered. Um, Peter uh, goes for himself, finds the tomb empty, doesn't know what to think. And it's all very, uh, in Luke's telling of the story, it's all very tense and unsettling. It's like, what's going on here? Nobody knows what to think, right? And then Luke turns the corner, and we get the story known as the road to Emmaus. Let's begin. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now on that same day, so this is still Easter, Easter, the first Easter afternoon, evening by now. On that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So now this traveling group of two is a group of three. And he said to him, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him and said, are you the only guy in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have taken place here these days? And he asked him, Jesus that is, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem, to liberate Israel. From who? From Rome. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group 
astounded us. <laughs> they were at the tomb early this morning, and when they didn't find the body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then Jesus said to him, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Okay, let's just pause. That's about the midpoint of the story. So it's afternoon toward evening on Resurrection Sunday, and these two disciples of Jesus are walking from uh, Jerusalem toward Emmaus, about seven miles away. And you may be familiar with this, a solid tradition um, in the church uh, that this was actually a husband and wife couple, that this was Cleopas and his wife named Mary. And I, I love that image. So when I think of this story, that's what I'm thinking. This is Cleopas and his wife, Mary. They're confused. They're talking about what's going on. Their minds are racing. It's been a crazy week, of course, climaxing now in this very disappointing conclusion on Good Friday. Jesus has been horrifically crucified. And they expose the, the crux of their bewilderment, right? So their, their thinking had been that this is Israel's Messiah. This is the, the Messiah that the prophets promised. And their full-on total expectation was, if we've got this right and this is the Messiah, then the next thing that's going to happen is the Messiah is going to liberate us from the boot of Rome. And most certainly, that had not happened. So they spill all this out to this stranger to them who the storyteller notifies us is actually Jesus. And they spill all this out and the, 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 to put a point on it, we thought he was going to liberate us from Israel, but that hadn't happened. He was supposed to liberate us from the pagans and instead he was killed by the pagans. So this is, this is not how this story was supposed to end. And then you have the whole bit about the reports from that early Sunday morning of the vision of the two angels in an empty tomb and the report that, that Jesus' body was not to be found. And they don't know what to think. And then you get this line where Luke tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the things about himself in the scriptures. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Let's continue the story. Verse 28. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going along, right? Like they're going to take the exit ramp for Emmaus and he's going to keep going. Uh, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, that very minute, quick change of plans, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. 
They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they, Cleopas and Mary, told what had happened on the road and how he had been known to them in the breaking of bread. All right, so this party of three is walking. They keep walking until they reach Emmaus. Jesus indicates that he's going to go on ahead. They say, stay with us for a while. So they sit down to share a meal. Jesus takes it, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to him. And boom, instantly, two things happen. First thing that happens, they suddenly recognize that it's been Jesus they've been walking with and talking with all along. And he vanishes from their sight. So they do. They make this quick change of plans. Okay, Emmaus, we're out of here. We're going back to Jerusalem to catch up with the others and report these things. They get there and they find out that in the meantime, Jesus has in fact, in fact also appeared to Peter. So they learn that and they give their report to the 11 and, it's include, and they include this beautiful line, how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. That is... Emmaus. And so now, a series of questions back to what we were talking about before. Why does Luke tell us this story? Well, the kind of the, I guess the bare metal historical answer is because the Jesus followers that Luke interviewed in constructing his story, uh, they told this story to Luke. That's why. But okay, that begs a second question then. Why did Luke's interviewees tell this story well i guess we could keep playing this game because other jesus followers had told them this story this story had been passed along among the jesus community in other words so then the question why did those earliest followers of jesus tell and retell this story so that eventually it got reported to luke well two reasons First, because it happened. Secondly, they told and retold this story because of what it meant to them. Because of what it meant to them about Easter, what it meant to them about Jesus. And so I want to give just, I think, three, maybe four, I don't know, a handful of takeaways from this story for why it is that the earliest Jesus followers told and retold and told and retold this story about Jesus, particularly on Resurrection Sunday. The first is this. The crucified and risen Christ is the key for reading the Bible. There is, I mean, just to kind of state this kind of flat out, uh, what you already know, is that the Jesus movement continued to embrace the Torah of their Jewish inheritance, what we, uh, Jewish heritage, what we call the Old Testament. But it's also true and equally important to recognize that the Jesus community very quickly adopted a very new way of reading the Torah, what we call the Old Testament. And here is a concise way of pointing out what the earliest Jesus followers very quickly did with the Torah. Say it like this. For the Jewish people, Moses is both the revealer of God and the Bible is the revelation of God. So for the Jewish people, Moses is the revealer of God and the Bible is the revelation of God. But for Christians, it's different. 
Jesus is the revealer of God, and Jesus is himself the revelation of God. That's very different. And so when someone says, we know that God is angry and retributive because there's this verse in Exodus, or we know that God is a killer because there's this verse in Joshua, the early Christians would respond with something like, whoa, 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 slow down there, young fella. You seem to have gotten things backwards. See, uh, we see God and we know God in and through Jesus Christ. He is the full and final self-revelation of God. All other claims to divine revelation must bow before the full and final self-revelation of God as revealed in Jesus Christ himself, namely Christ crucified and resurrected. This is what the early Christ, earliest Christians meant, by the way, with the doctrine of the Trinity. What they were saying is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God the Son. He is God's full self-disclosure to the world. That's the meaning. And so, again, this is, the earliest Christians would say this is not to demote or to downgrade the importance of the Bible, but it is to elevate Christ himself to the place of divine, the full self-disclosure of God. And Jesus himself said, you study the scriptures because you think in them you find life. But they point to me. Again, that, what's the reason the gospel writers told that story? Because the Jesus community told that story. Why the Jesus community told that story over and over and over again? Because that's the central, part of the central claim of what they're saying. We have seen God. Uh, we all know that no one has seen God, but he has revealed himself to us in Christ, would say the gospel writer John. He is the logos, the word of God. Put plainly, the earliest Christians shouted from the rooftops that Jesus is what God has to say to us about himself. And all other voices, all other claims must bow to the full self-revelation of God discovered, revealed in Christ. And so the earliest followers told this story of Emmaus. He revealed to us Everything about himself in the scriptures. Now, does this point matter or is this kind of abstract and kind of fuzzy and kind of theoretical? I want to say it matters big time. It matters significantly. There are actually a number of conversations, I'll say, that are going on within the pages of the Bible. You might even say debates that are going on among the pages of the Bible about who God is, about what God is like, about the nature of God. And for Christians, Jesus himself is the final authoritative answer on these issues. For example, there's a question about re retribution that runs through the pages of the Bible. For example, many biblical voices seem to say that God rewards the righteous with pleasant outcomes and circumstances in life, and that God punishes the unrighteous with unpleasant outcomes and circumstances in life. This is quite common throughout the Bible, right? This is what, what's called the theology of retribution. It's found, for example, in Deuteronomy. If you do these things, you know, X, Y, and Z, then things are going to go well. If you don't do these things, then life is going to be, you know, a mess and it's going to be hard for you. Uh, the book of Proverbs is basically written that way, right? If the wise experience, you know, 
uh, roses and pleasant outcomes. The foolish experience, you know, heartbreak and shrapnel and all that stuff. So, so that theme is there in, in the Bible for sure. And yet, there are other voices in Scripture who are saying, well, maybe things aren't quite so cut and dry, you know. Um, in fact, sometimes the righteous actually do suffer in this world. Uh, and sometimes the unrighteous turn out to do pretty well in this world. So not so fast with your cut and dry, you get what you deserve claims, you know. Um, the book of Job would be an example of this. He was a righteous man who did suffer. Um, and we find out throughout the, if you can sit and read the whole poem, 40 some odd chapters, um, we find out that God was not, never was the cause of his suffering. The book of Ecclesiastes would be another example where over and over the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is going to say, you know what, sometimes you do everything right and your life just goes to hell, you know. Um, or he's going to say, and sometimes the unrighteous do prosper. That's the voice of Ecclesiastes. And you find other examples of that. Then comes Jesus. And Jesus says things like this. Love your enemies and you will be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, love your enemies because this is what your heavenly Father is like. Your heavenly Father, in fact, loves his enemies. Do you see how Jesus is engaging this ancient conversation? Because there are those in that ancient conversation who say that, um, that those who become enemies of God will be punished by God. That is essentially what the theology of retribution says. But Jesus comes along and says, ah, not so fast. Here's what I want to say. You want to you wanna embody the nature of your heavenly father? Here's how you do it. You love your enemies. See? Uh, and so, because this is what God is like. And again, I mean, ex very explicitly, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. And they say, yeah, not only we heard it said, we've seen it written. That's what Moses told us to do, an eye for an eye. But Jesus says, I say to you, right? So, so uh, in, in, in this conversation goes on and on. There's one instance where uh, some of the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, who, who sinned so that this man was born blind? What are they doing? They're speaking out of this theology of retribution. In other words, if someone is born blind, we must be able to trace back up the cause and effect chain of righteousness and unrighteousness and so on. We must be able to chase back somewhere there's some unrighteousness that was committed by somebody so that the ripple effect cascaded down to this guy who was born blind. And Jesus says, nobody, you knucklehead. Nobody sinned so that this person was born blind. That's not even the way it works. In fact, if anything, this is an opportunity for God to show off and show his goodness to this young man who is suffering. Some, some even make it sound like God might, you know, take to killing people if things get bad enough. But Jesus, again, answers that. He says, no, it's the thief who kills, steals, and destroys. But I've come, the full self-disclosure of God, I've come that you might have life, life in its fullness. So there is a conversation that runs through the Bible on this question of retribution and for Christians who see the full self-disclosure of God in Christ, Jesus settles the matter. See what I'm saying? This is what the earliest Christians did with these conversations. There's another one about ritual sacrifice that runs right, up, right through the Bible. If you listen closely, or not even closely, if you listen 
to the priestly voice as expressed in Leviticus. You know, God cannot even dwell among his people um, because their sin has polluted the atmosphere. And so God can't even come near his people. And so we now got to make sacrifices that function like, like a spiritual detergent, you know, to cleanse the atmosphere uh, so that God can dwell among us. So absolutely, sacrifices are essential. They are essential to God. They are essential to God's people. If God's people are to maintain any sort of presence uh, with God, you know, sacrifices are essential. And yet, don't you know, there are other voices that run through the Bible as well. The prophets come along. And they say things like, uh, I don't want your sacrifices. All I want is for you to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The psalmist joins this prophetic critique against ritual sacrifice and says things like, do I eat the blood of bulls? Come on, people. Get real. The sacrifice that God requires is a contrite heart. That's what the psalmist says. So you have this conversation, and I am summarizing, but you have this conversation. And then comes Jesus into the conversation. And first of all, we notice that Jesus never quotes a single passage of Scripture in support of the priestly insistence upon ritual sacrifice. The first thing you notice is what's not there in Jesus' teaching. And then you notice what is there. When Jesus does engage this long, ancient conversation what Jesus does is he draws from the rich tradition of the prophetic critique against ritual sacrifice. And he says something like, go and learn the meaning of this. To obey is better than sacrifice, Jesus says. That's always been the point. Obedience. And so here again, you have this long conversation that runs right through the Bible, the question of ritual sacrifice. And Christian, for Christians, Jesus settles the matter. Another one back to righteousness and suffering. Not quite, but almost unanimously in the Bible, we find the belief that the righteous should not suffer. And if, in fact, the righteous are uh, found to be suffering, then something has gone very, very wrong. God must be asleep at the controls or some kind of thing like that. And then Jesus comes along as the very embodiment of the righteousness of God, right? That's who he is. And what does he do? What does he do? He endures suffering, the suffering of the cross. And, and, and importantly, Jesus invites all of his followers to take up their cross and follow him. It is the way of Jesus. Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday is not just an event that happened. It is the way of Jesus, the way of death and resurrection, the way through death and out the other side to resurrection life. It is the way of rescue, of healing, of liberation, the path through death and out the other side into life. And so here yet again is one of those conversations that runs throughout the Bible. And yet again, Jesus settles the question for Christians, those that is who see the full and final self-disclosure of God in Jesus Christ. And so, the telling and retelling of this Emmaus story, do you see what I'm saying? The telling and retelling of this Emmaus story serves to remind and to reshape 
those in the Jesus community as a, this is how we read these ancient texts. We read these ancient texts through the lens of Jesus. He is our touchstone. He is our Rosetta Stone for understanding and interpreting the scriptures. And I just want to say, it's a good reminder for us as well. Sometimes today, it seems like I think Christians have forgotten what the earliest Christians knew so well and claimed so boldly. Today, it seems like many Christians assume that the Bible is God's full, final self-revelation. And so I found a verse somewhere, and so this must be the mind of God on the matter. No. To be a Christian is bolder than that. It's to say that what God has to say to us about himself is Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Christ. He is our key. He is our touchstone. Jesus is the truth. That is what this, these early Christians were saying by telling and retelling this Emmaus story. The second one is this, and this is beautiful, that the crucified and risen Christ is always with us on the journey. Even when we aren't aware of his presence, right? Think about Cleopas and Mary. Even when we aren't aware of his presence with us, still, he is with us. I mean, so, you know, try to take this in. You know, they're, they're bewildered, they're despondent, they're confused. Their hopes have been dashed. They are emptied of hope, I think it's fair to say. These two are in a total funk. And Jesus is walking right there with them, right? I mean, I'll just say, I need, I need this story, right? Like, I need the forming, shaping force of this story. I mean, because I'll just say, and I mean, I'm saying it because I suspect it's not just me, but what's really, really easy for me is to imagine that when I'm in a dark place, when I'm in a funk, when I'm confused, when I'm like, what the heck just happened? When I'm in that place, it's really easy for me to imagine that this is happening because God must be absent. Right? Like, it's easy for me to fall into that way of thinking. Like, the, the reason, you know, or... or it, um, the fact that I'm in a difficult place, the fact that I'm in a dark place, the fact that it feels like, you know, I'm on the bottom is evidence that God has abandoned me somehow, some way. It's easy for me to think that way. I mean, because that's kind of how we measure our proximity to God. If things are good, then I must be close to God. If things are bad, dark, difficult, etc., then I must be somehow separated from God, right? I mean, that's, that's how I want to say, you know, performance religion teaches us to think. But this story, this Emmaus thing, it blows all of that way of thinking right out the window. And little wonder, right? You think about those earliest decades for the church where they had this enormously good news to say to the world. And all they got in return was persecution and hatred right back. That's all they got. I mean, we're living, like now in history, we look back and, you know, 
uh, some of us fail to notice it, but Christendom is now on the decline. But just a few, you know, generation or two ago, I mean, the, it seemed like the whole world was Christian and Christianity was vogue. And so, you know, it's hard for us to kind of appreciate what the early church went through. It's little wonder why they would tell this story again and again and again. Man, even on that first Resurrection Sunday when Cleopas and Mary, they were, they were dark, they were confused, they were hopeless, and Jesus was with them. And you know what? He's with us too. We got the doors locked. We got the soldiers banging. They're going to come in any, any day and persecute us some more. And Jesus is right here with us. You see what I'm saying? There's a shaping, a forming that goes on by telling and retelling this story. It is a picture of God's one-sided, pursuing love for people. The crucified and risen Christ is always with you on the journey, no matter what, even when you may not realize it, even when you may think, looking around, everything I see, everywhere I see is evidence that God has abandoned me. No, Jesus is with you every step on the journey. Finally, the meaning of this story, the crucified and risen Christ is revealed in the breaking of bread. The Savior is revealed in the breaking of bread. The Savior who is the fountainhead of God's healing and transformation is revealed in the sharing of a meal together. That's what happened in this story. You know, if you, if you can imagine a person or a people category um, that you might hold in suspicion or contempt or prejudice. I mean, what you know through your own life experience is that it's difficult to hold on to that suspicion or that contempt or that prejudice after you've shared a meal with them, right? I mean, it's just true. And so what does that tell us just in plain human experience? Well, it tells us that even still, the Savior is revealed in the breaking of bread. Um, backing up a little bit from that very human observation. Um, one theologian in the early church pointed out that for Luke's telling of the story, this is the first meal of the new creation. Now, again, remember, for the earliest Christians, they saw that with the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the new creation had, out, had actually begun. God's great renewal of all things is underway. Jesus is the pioneer, the first fruits of the new age, God's new era. That's what they understood to be happening with Easter. That language is all throughout the New Testament. And so then there's this from Luke. We see the first meal of the new creation right here. They break bread together. They share a meal together, and their eyes are opened, and Christ is revealed to them. Now, Again, we're stepping back and just, just fast forward back from the first Easter all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Think about the first meal in the Bible. Where did the first meal in the Bible occur? Well, it occurred in the garden, Genesis 3. I'll read it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, look what it said, 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they saw that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. That's the first meal of the Bible. The man and the woman fed themselves on a fruit of their own choosing, and their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened to shame. This is the center point of that ancient story that explains to us how it is that we live in a world that was created by God, created good, very good, and yet it is a world now that is dark and broken and in such need of healing. That's Genesis 3. That's the first meal in the Bible. And then Luke tells us about this first meal of the new creation. This man and this woman are fed not with a fruit of their own choosing, but they're fed by Jesus. And when they eat, their eyes are opened. And what are their eyes open to? What do they see? They see Christ, the author of life, the lover and healer of their souls. The curse is lifted, Luke is saying. Healing has come. Now, admittedly for us moderns, it's hard for us to think in those terms, but that's what Luke is saying. Luke is saying, this is the undoing of Eden. This is the new creation. The world, broken as it is, was launched with a meal in Genesis 3. The world renewed, the world healed, the world transformed by the power and presence and love of God is launched with a meal. And so, clearly, once again, this story would serve as a reminder for the Jesus community Yes, of what has become our most important symbolic act that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. This symbolic meal that points us to our shared communion of, of life both together and our common life with Jesus. But it's important also to remember that this was an actual meal shared together. It wasn't a symbolic, you know, piece of bread and a sip of juice or wine. It was an actual meal, both in Emmaus and for the earliest Christians. When they celebrated what we call the Lord's Supper, they shared a meal together. When Jesus shared what we call the Last Supper with his disciples, where this ritual act was born for us as Christians, they shared an actual meal together, not just a symbolic morsel. And so what I want to say as we conclude this morning as this pandemic begins to fade, thank God, I want to ask you to find friends with whom you can share a meal. It might have been over a year since many of us have shared a meal with someone outside of our family or our pod, as they say. Um, and I want to ask you to be purposeful as things as you can do so safely. To find friends with whom you can share a meal. And just know, just know that Christ is revealed in the breaking of bread together. He is. He's revealed. Christ is revealed in the breaking of bread together. Think about it. Think about <laughs> that, that atmosphere that is a shared meal together of openness, of generosity, of inclusion, of equality. You know, when you're sitting at a table with somebody, you're equal, you know. 
That's where Jesus is revealed. That's the atmosphere in which the Christ is revealed. Openness, generosity, equality, inclusion, hospitality. Christ is revealed there every time. That is the revelation of the Christ. Christ is not revealed in the competition and jealousy that's so common in our culture. Christ is not revealed in the culture wars. Christ is not revealed in the shaming and the blaming. Christ is not revealed in the pretending and the projecting. No. Christ is revealed in that generous, inclusive, hospitable, egalitarian atmosphere that is the sharing of a common meal. And I think what Luke and the earliest Christians were saying is you bottle up all of that, that commonness that is uh, difficult to ignore in the sharing of a common meal. You bottle up all of that and begin to let it spill from there out into every facet and every area of life, and the result is the kingdom of God through and through. Everybody tracking? Let's pray.